386, Chapter 17 and 18. Book Talk begins at 11.25. Welcome to Craftlid. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 386, Like a Weed. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to love, throw, or cuddle, and March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can find both at Etsy and our patrons at patreon.com slash craftlet. Visit the site and find out what kinds of rewards await you for supporting Craftlit. All of the supporters can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. And remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your gardening tips and hacks. We have suddenly become infested with dandelions, and I sent the boys out to try and dig them up as fast as they could to break them off at the roots way down deep and shake them out and get rid of them. And the ground was so hard with big fat shovels and big handheld trowels and all sorts of stuff. Nothing worked. Nothing, nothing, nothing worked. So here are the voicemails I received from you on the topic. And that will be followed by some of the comments that I got on Instagram, on Twitter, and by email. Hi, good morning, Heather. This is Anita. I am Well Knit Life on Ravelry, and I was just so excited to get your message this week that you're going to be talking about gardening, which is one of my favorite things to do while listening to Craftlet. I have areas of my garden that I associate with different Craftlet books, like the time that I listened to, I think, all of Women in White while I was sifting through an area that I was turning over to be part of my garden and sifting and taking out all these rocks. And and it was actually very empowering to listen to uh, Women in White and Woman Power while I was doing a kind of back-breaking sort of work. But again, I just was so thrilled to hear that you were going to be talking about gardening. I don't have any magic for dandelions besides I suppose that it's always a little bit easier to just pick the flowers and prevent the next generation than to uh, get all of the ones from the current generation out. There are tools out there that I have used and none of them is, uh, none of them is great. Um, Yeah. I tend to be more of a live with it gardener. Um, about the dandelions. So anyway, thanks so much. I am, again, just so happy to be a listener and I'm really enjoying Sense and Sensibility. So have a great day. Bye-bye. Jill, who is Tiger Jill on Twitter, wrote back to me, I love dandelions. They're pretty and useful. We make wine from the petals and chop up the young leaves in a salad. If you pick the very small young leaves for a salad, they're very bitter. So only a small quantity, maybe just a taste first. And then she wrote, we make wine from the petals. My OH makes it and it's lovely. I don't have his recipe, but a quick Google found this. And so I've linked to her recipe that she shared in the show notes. 
And then she followed that up by saying, you need to make sure not to get the green bits in the wine. A little bit doesn't hurt, but just the flower heads with green, or it will be too bitter. And then Twitterer at France underscore Normandy wrote, we dig the dandelions out before they get a chance. It's the only way to keep on top of them here as the roadsides are full of them. Fisker's Uproot Weed Puller. And I've linked to that. No bending, but it does sometimes leave a hole to fill. And I wrote back that a hole would be welcome relief at this point. So thank you. I know a lot of you do garden while you listen to the podcast. And in fact, if you do, if you do anything, (laughs) that just sounded wrong. If you do anything while you're listening to the podcast, I know you do. We all do. That's how we listen to podcasts. Whatever it is that you are doing when you're listening to the podcast, if you think of it, have somebody snap a picture of you while you're listening and doing that thing, whether it's gardening or vacuuming or dishes or knitting, whatever, snap a picture of you with your earbuds in or headphones on and send that to me. I am making a compilation little quickie video of all the different ways people listen to podcasts because we have learned something in the podcasting community, which is this. Those of you who already listen to podcasts, you know how much easier it has gotten over the last nine years. It used to be really quite a thing to go out and find a podcast and an RSS feed and an aggregator and all this stuff. And I think I mentioned this on North and South. You guys are the early adopters. You're the, you're the people who were capable of doing all of that stuff. And that's awesome. But there are a lot of people out there who say they would love to listen to podcasts, but, oh, they just don't have time or they, they just don't know how. And I understand because you do get to the point where you feel like one more thing that I have to do and I am just going to fall over and whimper. I get that. But I think that's because a lot of people don't realize that, at least for me, what I wind up doing is taking that time where I'm not learning anything or not reading anything and I'm just doing the dishes. I can listen to a book. I can learn history. I can learn Latin. I can listen to podcasts all the time if I want to because there's plenty to choose from. And because of smartphones and tablets and things like that, it is not a difficult thing to do. I think it is one thing to have a friend tell you that it's really easy, and it is another thing entirely to see pictures of somebody doing the thing that you're talking about, and I thought it'd be kind of fun. So if you do send me your picture, you are in fact giving me permission to put your picture into a little, like a super fast slideshow, which I will then share with some of my other podcasting friends who who are also facing the same thing. We have people who say, oh, I'd love to listen to that, but I just don't have time. So we, we thought this might help. I actually did pick up yarn this week. I know it's been over a year and I crocheted little bitty cork knights and they're so cute. And I'm sure I'm late to the party on this. These have been out forever. But if you haven't seen them and if you save corks, which I do, because for one thing, they make great trivets. But if you save corks, you can crochet a little cover for the cork that looks like a medieval knight. And you can, you can make a whole army of these guys. They are quick. I made two while we were watching TV the other night, and I went to bed early. So they they go quickly. I think they use a size F hook, and I have linked to the pattern from the show notes, and I've included pictures of my little knights that I've done so far. 
it was a nice, low-stress thing to do, and you know that mattered a lot to me right now. So I think I'm going to make a whole army of these for my little nephew. There's also a pattern for a princess, so you can also do princesses and knights if you want. You could probably do a king and a queen. wouldn't take that much. So there's lots of ways to change these up. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There's a new app called Clamor, C-L-A-M-M-R. I have since put a Clamor player onto the Craftlet show notes. I think it's down on the front page, the home page on the left-hand side. And that way you can listen to it and see what you think. I find myself listening to Clamor while I'm cooking and just let it roll. You know, 18 seconds of audio and then and then 18 more seconds of audio and and... I have come across stories that I never would have heard and articles that I never would have found and links through to podcasts that I'd never known about before. And it's very easy to listen to. You know, nothing lasts longer than 18 seconds. So even if you hate what you're listening to, it's going to be over really fast. But the other thing, they're very responsive to feedback over at Clamor, which you'll see next week. But they have added a feature now where you can remix people's Clamors. So for example... You could take my audio and you could do a mashup of me and Aaron Ziegler at Chopbard, or you could add goofy music behind whatever it is that I'm saying. They have all sorts of different ways that you can do funky things on their app, and they have very good helper videos over on YouTube. But these are really interesting, creative guys. I'm very impressed for a couple of businessy, lawyery guys. I'm really. I'm impressed. And I think next week, (laughs) you will be too. So if you haven't taken a look at the app, do. It's C-L-A-M-M-R. Right now it's just for iOS, but there will be a link through to my Clamor page so you can see my feed. And that includes stuff that I've made, but also stuff that I'm following. So you can can take a look at it on a, a regular browser that way. They're working on an Android app, but they're much more complicated to make because... It's open source, which means every phone does it a little bit differently. So they have to make sure that each phone can run the thing properly. It takes time. Lillian, at a brand new podcast called the Food Nonfiction Podcast, which I've linked to from the show notes, she did a new Craftlit logo. If you go to iTunes and you look at the store or you go to the show notes and you look on our show notes, you will see a brand new Craftlit logo that I love. I am so excited. And her podcast, so cool. It's history, but about food. The one that I listened to first was about Ben Franklin and Parmesan cheese. So just in case you didn't know that those two things were connected, you should listen to the podcast. It's only about half an hour long, and she has a very easy voice to listen to. It's really fun, and they're brand new. And she is also an awesome artist. Go look at her logo work. Her website is brandbear.ca. She's Canadian. And I think if you are in the market and you need a logo done, something that's unique, something that's handmade, something that's crafted for you, this is, this is the girl to go to. And if you've been waiting to binge listen to Twelfth Night over on Chop Bard, you are free to do so now. Twelfth Night is done, but even more important than that, for the very first time, Aaron Ziegler has released audio of the entire play. So you can listen start to finish to Twelfth Night now as an audiobook. And you get to hear me play Mariah, which was a lot of fun. So click over through the link at the show notes for episode 386 and you can listen.
The fabulous Diane, wife of our Scotsman, our resident Scotsman, Arlen, wrote and left a comment on episode 385. And she said, Your comments about Willoughby's copying sheet music from Marianne made me think of the pens, called staff pens, that would help make this process somewhat less laborious. They draw five parallel lines for transcribing music notation. And then she provided a link to one that comes from the time period of our book. And I've linked to that page from the show notes for this episode 386. And she also commented on a conversation that's been happening over in the Facebook Craftlet page about Fanny Burney, who was an amazing writer that I mentioned on the last episode. She said, I loved Evelina especially and thought the LibriVox version wasn't bad. Then again, I'd far rather listen to slightly poor audio quality than high-quality audio from someone with a dry mouth, annoying voice, or poor pronunciation. So maybe it's just me. She also wanted me to pass along that the In Our Time podcast about Miss Bernie won't go away in a week. The entire archive of that particular show is available to listen to online, and there are lots of great episodes about literature and history and any other subject that you can imagine. So thank you, Diane, for sending that in. Well, for making that comment and letting me read it. Oh, and we just got this NPR, When Luddites Attack. It's a really very interesting NPR piece on where the word Luddite came from and why the Luddites did what they did. And it does relate to North and South. And if you didn't know this history before, it's probably worth a listen because I know people do throw the word Luddite around. It's probably not a bad idea to know what it means. Know what I'm saying? And so we go from north and south into our current book. Sense and Sensibility. Hi, Heather. This is Lori calling. Lori 1176 on Ravelry and a resident of the San Francisco Bay Area and have been listening to Craftlet since the very beginning. And I was out for a walk listening to the latest episode, and when I heard the call from Anne responding to your question about men and their sort of thoughts and feelings, I suddenly remembered a couple of books, well, one that I read a long time ago and one that I just read this month that gave both the male and the female perspective, and I thought it was worth mentioning. The one that I read uh, way back in 1990 was uh, actually two books, Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge by Evan S. Connell. They were actually written in the late 1960s, and then a movie was made with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, which was very good, but the books were far, far better because you really got an incredible sense of first Mrs. Bridge, and you read her whole story and feel the sort of angst about her relationship with her husband and some sadness. And then you read Mr. Bridge and it hits you between the eyes when you read the very beginning and find out that one of the first things, as I recall, and this book obviously had an impression on me, how much he loved his wife. So I thought uh, those were wonderful books and I highly recommend them. I think they're still very current. And then more recently, I read a young adult book called Eleanor and Park. And I know that you are a fan of young adult fiction. And this was a wonderful story of two high school students, very uh, sort of unlikely that they would have ever gotten together, but through a series of circumstances that starts with them sitting on a bus together, they they start a relationship. And it's written um, in very quick alternating pieces by Eleanor and by Park. And you get, I think, a wonderful sense of what early romance is like through the eyes of a boy and the eyes of a girl. 
So I just wanted to tell you about those and thank you so much for having enriched my life for so many years with your podcast. All right. So good book recommendations for us from Lori. Today's chapters are fairly straightforward and simple. However, Jane Austen makes a reference, a casual reference, through the voice of Marianne. And this one reference sent me down a rabbit hole that was so cool and so interesting that I, I actually can't wait to share it with you. So I'm going to go through all of the little things, the, the terminology that uh, there are quite actually a few words that have changed considerably in their connotation. And then I'll get to this funky thing that I did not know about. Now, some of you have probably seen elements of what we're about to talk about in museums over the years. And if you own one of these things, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please get in touch with me. You can either call 1-206-350-1642 to share your stories, or you can write me at heather at craftlit.com and send pictures. You'll see what I mean momentarily. But first, the words that have changed, (laughs) because they've changed a bit. The first term is competence. Now, we usually use this word to mean that you're good enough at something to be competent at doing it. But this was also a term, and I have actually heard it in real life nowadays, but in the past, it often meant a competency of money, enough to live on, that it would be not extravagant amounts of money, but enough, enough to live on comfortably and fine. And so you'll hear the term used that way in today's chapters. And along with the word competence, you're going to hear a mention of a level of income. It's uh, 1,800 to 2,000 pounds a year. This is what you would draw off of your principal. So this is not having only 1,800 or 2,000 pounds total. This would be that 5% that you draw off to live on. (laughs) I found a reference to this amount of money, and it is described as the top 1% of people in the UK at this time would have had an income of 1,800 to 2,000 pounds a year. And that that has actually become a colloquial thing here, the 1% and the 99% since the Occupy Wall Street thing happened. So a reference to anything hovering around 2,000 pounds a year would be a reference to living as one of the one percenters, just to put that into perspective for you. A reference towards having hunters This would not be having hunters over for the weekend or hunters' dogs. This would be having hunters' horses. And don't forget the expense for upkeep of horses and carriages was really quite a lot. And I've learned the taxes on carriages. So one carriage, you're not going to have that much in taxes that you have to pay some, but not a ton. Getting a second carriage, though, that you're going to get taxed on higher. So... There was a lot of expense towards having more than one carriage in your family. Similar to what we saw Willoughby doing in the previous chapters of copying out sheet music for Marianne, people would often get prints 
printed prints, which by the way, you can see all the time in the bookseller stalls underneath Waterloo Bridge. People would get copies of these prints. And then if they were artists themselves, they would make copies of the copy, (laughs) copies of the print. And that was a pastime. And it relates to what we're going to talk about shortly. And along with the sales of these prints and things, during the rise of the Romantic movement, there was an attitude or or a mindset that if you were wealthy, if you were part of the 1%, part of what you should be doing would be giving artists and writers not commissions because you'd want them to create whatever they were inspired to create, but to lay money out as an annuity for those artists or writers to continue doing the things that they were doing because nobody was making a huge ton of money being an artist or a writer most of the time. It's very much the same thing that you see right now with Patreon or the Medici's back in the day, that the responsibility for the continual creation of art and beauty in the world was in a large part dependent upon the upper class supporting the, the working artist class. So you'll, you'll hear a reference to that today. The word stupid did not have quite the same pejorative bent that it does today. You could talk about feeling stupid yourself, and really all it meant is that you were feeling slow, like getting up from a nap and being kind of disoriented and feeling not quite entirely with it yet would be feeling stupid. And it wasn't a permanent state the way that we seem to use it now. So that's that's just a little bit of a change in, in the word there. Another word that's similar but has an alternate meaning that was used just as frequently is the word reserved. Nowadays, saying that someone is reserved often just means that they're a little bit shy or they're not as exuberant as the people around them or a little more reluctant to talk allowed in front of others. And that's all true for Jane Austen's day as well. But it could also mean that you were reserving information, that you were reluctant to share the truth. And so it it did have a, a slightly more pejorative, optional meaning. And so I think how people took the words usage had an awful lot to do with context and an awful lot to do with what was going on in their own head about themselves or the person who is being referred to as being reserved. And you will hear the interplay of those two possible meanings go back and forth during one of the chapters today. And now the thing to which I have been alluding but not talking about, (laughs) and that is beauty. But not just any kind of beauty. It's a very specific kind of beauty because, as we've learned from listening to Marianne, there are very specific kinds of beauty, and one must know how to appreciate them. And she's certainly drawn to things like a rugged hillside with the wind sweeping across it and the clouds blowing blustery things. And we've talked about Arcadia and that idea of having the neo-Gothic quote-unquote, ruins built new on your property, which included things like Blaze Castle. Now, if you've ever read Northanger Abbey, which is a parody of books like The Mysteries of Udolpho, this kind of overblown Gothic drama romance, Jane Austen 
found all of this hilarious. And there's a lot more to that statement than I had previously thought. And that's what I'm going to share with you. But just so you know, on the show notes for today, episode 386, you will find pictures or links out to pages with pictures of things like Blaze Castle, which, if you haven't read Northanger Abbey, was a castle that was built in the mid-1700s to appear to be a square, turreted, gothic castle, to the point where they actually scattered chunks of broken rock, quarried rock, around the grounds to make it look like it was tumbling down. (laughs) There's a great section in Northanger Abbey where a guy, in trying to hit on a girl, basically says he's going to take her to Blaze Castle, and she says, a castle? Is it a real castle? Oh, yes. And is it a very old castle? Oh, the oldest. And does it have big, long galleries that we can walk through? Tons of them. And it isn't real. It's a Disneyland version of a medieval castle. Jane Austen put that in so that anybody who had read things like The Mysteries of Adolfo or who knew of Blaise Castle, a place that you can still go visit, you would understand that this guy was teasing and also uh, playing on the girl's innocence and lack of real knowledge. She knew her books very well, but she didn't know real life very well at all. So the reason why Blaise Castle pops up in the conversation, not about Northanger Abbey, but about Sense and Sensibility, is because of the word picturesque. Now, picturesque to us usually means something along the lines of, wow, that's so pretty, it could be a picture. As in a work of art picture, not a Kodak moment picture, something that people might actually pay money for, that kind of picturesque. But back in Jane Austen's day, there were more rules about words like this, and the romantics really took this stuff to heart. So this crosses that line from pre-romantic through romantic and later. And it was because they decided that there were three main categories of natural beauty. And the fact that they talked about natural beauty at all was a really big deal. Because prior to the start of this discussion, natural beauty was something that happened outside of England. You would go on your grand tour, like, um, the, what was it, the chocolate? Oh, it was the Enchanted Chocolate Pod. And the sequel, the sequel was actually called The Grand Tour. And there is now a third book out, so I will link to all of these from the show notes. Because they're fun. Young men and women of means would go on a grand tour through Europe. They would go and look at the architecture. They would go and look at the art. They would go and look at the statuary. They would go and look at the countryside, the Alps, the Italian vistas, the Greek ruins. Scenery wasn't something that happened at home. Home was where, you know, there were farmers and they were poor. And why would you want to go look at that? I guess nobody had been to Scotland and actually taken a look at the Highlands. I'm just saying, I don't get that part. But nonetheless, it was a big, big deal for people to suddenly start to say things like, you know, the Lake District is really lovely. And other people said, what now? Here? Hey, what? So it was a thing. And it couldn't just be left as, hey, Guys, look, there's prettiness here. 
Instead, it had to be codified and defined. And so by Jane Austen's time, you had three main categories that were considered part of natural beauty, definitionally. And those categories were beautiful, which would be something that was soft and rounded and uh, in a uh, human form, it would be kind of Rubenesque. But something in nature, because they're talking about nature here, something in nature that was, that was round, that was soft, that was, you know, big puffy clouds, things like that. That would be beautiful. And then, and I found this to be really interesting, the second category was sublime. Sublime meant, and still can mean, something that is massive and potentially dangerous and kind of overwhelming or overpowering, that it's Frankenstein. It's something that's big and dark and looming and potentially ominous, but it's that kind of rugged beauty that you would see in nature. Hello, Scottish Highlands. And then finally, you get the word picturesque, which literally means worthy of being a picture, but, and it, it came from the Italian back, back before this, but it came to mean scenery out in the nature that had irregular shapes or rough edges. This is where Blaise Castle with the fake broken down walls would be part of a picturesque landscape. In this case, a constructed one, but picturesque nonetheless. Now, there were certain artists who really embodied these ideas. One of them was Turner. And in 1794, Turner painted a picture of Tintern Abbey, which I have on the show notes. That is, I think, a spectacular representation of everything I just said. Irregular lines. It's painted at a funky angle. You can really see how Tintern Abbey both looks in real life, but also how it has been romanticized by him. And in fact, those of you who went on the previous Craftlet tour in 2010, you will look at this and go, ah, ha, ho, because the thing that has been dramatically changed is the color. In order to romanticify it, how's that for a new word? He toned the colors down. Tintern Abbey is like green. There's tons of green. There's green moss. There's green grass. There's green trees. River Y in the distance can look green depending on the angle of the sun. It is just exploding with gorgeous bright green. And this painting is kind of sepia-toned. So what's up with that? Well, the main proponent of the picturesque movement was a guy named Claude Lorraine. He was a landscape painter, and I've linked to a picture of his, and if you compare the tone, the color tone between his and Turner's, you will see that they match up, even though they're painted in very different places. So, hmm. And that is not even a little bit accidental, because they were both using something called a Claude glass, named after Claude Lorraine, C-L-A-U-D-E. A Claude glass, and it makes me laugh every time I say that out loud because it sounds like I'm saying C-L-O-D, which actually Jane Austen might have agreed with <laughs> at the time. Regardless, a Claude glass was usually a handheld oval mirror, except instead of having the mirror painted on the back with silver, 
so that it reflected a quote-unquote clear image. This was painted on the back with black paint, which meant that you would be looking in a glass darkly. Whatever was reflected back was going to have its light, its color, its tonality greatly diminished by the fact that you were looking at what is in effect a black mirror. Now, the other thing that they did, and I thought this was really cool, is they didn't use flat mirrors. They used convex mirrors, not hugely, mildly convex. So concave would be where you have a shallow or uh, indented surface where it goes down. Convex would be like the retina of your eye. So these were convex glasses painted black and they would reflect the landscape and kind of miniaturize it and change the color tone of it. So if what I just said makes no sense to you whatsoever, (laughs) I have linked to so many cool sites that I found about Claude glasses, including one that lives up at the Lake District. Diane, look at the link. Are we going there? Because that would be cool. You'll be able to see examples, people using them in modern days. I even linked to an instructable, a DIY, how to make your own Claude glass. So there is just tons of really cool stuff, including a live stream camera. Well, I couldn't Okay, I couldn't find the page that has the current live stream camera. I have a feeling it's been taken down. It was up in like 2007. But it was a live stream camera for a while of Tintern Abbey on the River Wye. And while I couldn't find a current live stream, I did find a QuickTime film, an archived QuickTime film from 2007 of a morning to night day looking in the Claude glass at Tintern Abbey. And it's really, it's like two minutes long. It's really interesting to watch how the landscape changes because it does go through a brief period where it looks more rugged, more gothic, more romantic. And then the rest of the time it looks like, hey, it's Tintern Abbey. Now what some of you have probably already figured out is that in order to use a Claude glass properly as an artist, you would have to stand or sit with your back to the objet d'art, the beautiful picturesque scene, it would be behind you. You would be sitting there squinting into this tiny little five or six inch across clawed glass and using that as your source for your painting or your sketch. This looked ridiculous and really, really dumb. I was going to say really stupid, but I don't mean that kindly. I mean, people made a lot of fun of this. To the point where an author named William Coombe wrote an entire three-volume set. It was a story written in verse. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you because it is kind of funny. And this poem, this epic poem, was called The Tour of Dr. Syntax in Search of the Picturesque, a poem Jane Austen had a copy of this. She read it. She knew it. She thought it was awesome. She mentioned it in letters. And she also used these ideas to make fun of people in Pride and Prejudice. One of these picturesque guys had determined that the proper number, and this is published, this was a quote from him, the proper number of cows to group together in order to be picturesque was three. So if you're going to paint a painting and there were going to be cows in the picture, groups of three were ideal in order for that picture to be picturesque. 
Elizabeth Bennett has a moment where the two girls interrupt her walk with Darcy and she kind of falls behind and Darcy tries to get her to catch up. And she says, no, no, I would, I would spoil the grouping and make it unpicturesque, implying that the girls and Darcy, but the girls in particular, were cows. And again, how would we get that joke if we didn't understand all of this picturesque Claude Glass stuff? Ah, Jane Austen, how I love you. I am going to post a picture, an etch, one of the engravings by Rowlandson that did appear in this book. <laughs> it's so cool because you look at the picture at first and you say, oh yeah, it's a guy on a horse. And then you look closer at the guy, the horse, and the directional sign. And you'll, you'll see what I mean. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. And the illustrations in this book do, in fact, make fun of people sitting there with their back to the beautiful part or overlooking all of the destitution and poverty and instead just seeing the rocky crag up above on a cliff. And that's all you're going to pay attention to instead of humanity and the problems there. So I'll read you just the first page of, of the tour of Dr. Syntax. And obviously, the rhyme would probably work better with the correct accent, but I will do my best not to appall you. It starts... <laughs> I'm sorry, I've had the giggles all day. It starts with Canto 1, the same way that Dante's Inferno is written in cantos. So, Canto 1. The school was done, the business o'er. When tired of Greek and Latin lore, good syntax sought his easy chair and sat in calm composure there. His wife was to a neighbor gone to hear the chit-chat of the town and left him the unfrequent power of brooding through a quiet hour. Thus while he sat, a busy train of images besieged his brain. Of church preferment he had none, nay, all his hope of that was gone, he felt that he content must be with drudging in a curacy. Indeed, on every Sabbath day, through eight long miles, he took his way to preach, to grumble, and to pray, to cheer the good, to warn the sinner, and, if he got it, eat a dinner, to bury these, to christen those, and marry such fond folks as chose, to change the tenor of their life, and risk the matrimonial strife. It just goes on from there. So he had a sense of humor, and the illustrations are just spectacular. The ones that I've been able to find are fantastic. And so you may be saying to yourself, Self, why has Heather gotten off on this bizarre tangent? And the reason is this. You're going to hear picturesque used in this chapter. In Actually, it might be used in both of these chapters. You will now understand the layers of why Jane Austen is using that term, and what Marianne means, because we know, right, that this is going to be a Marianne word, and what Marianne means when she uses the word. But more than that, you're going to hear picturesque and descriptions of things that are picturesque turned into an extended joke. And while I found it charming before, once I did the research into this picturesque thing and understood that these were actual hardcore definitions that people used, the implications for character development change. And it's curious. We find out some things about one of our characters that 
we didn't really know before. So that's kind of fun. And with that, let's listen to Maya Daguerre read us chapters 17 and 18 of Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Chapter 17 Mrs. Dashwood was surprised only for a moment at seeing him, for his coming to Barton was, in her opinion, of all things the most natural. Her joy and expression of regard long outlived her wonder. He received the kindest welcome from her, and shyness, coldness, reserve could not stand against such a reception. They had begun to fail him before he entered the house, and they were quite overcome by the captivating manners of Mrs Dashwood. Indeed, a man could not very well be in love with either of her daughters without extending that passion to her. And Eleanor had the satisfaction of seeing him soon become more like himself. His affection seemed to reanimate towards them all, and his interest in their welfare again became perceptible. He was not in spirits, however. He praised the house, admired its prospect, was attentive and kind, but still he was not in spirits. The whole family perceived it, and Mrs Dashwood, attributing it to some want of liberality in his mother, sat down to table indignant against all selfish parents. "'What are Mrs Ferris's views for you at present, Edward?' she said when dinner was over and they had drawn round the fire. "'Are you to still be a great orator in spite of yourself?' No, I hope my mother is now convinced that I have no more talents than inclination for a public life. But how is your fame to be established? For famous you must be to satisfy all your family. And with no inclination for expense, no affection for strangers, no profession and no assurance, you may find it a difficult matter. I shall not attempt it. I have no wish to be distinguished, and have every reason to hope I never shall. Thank heaven, I cannot be forced into genius and eloquence. You have no ambition, as I well know. Your wishes are all moderate. As moderate as those of the rest of the world, I believe. I wish, as everybody else, to be perfectly happy. But like everybody else, it must be in my own way. Greatness will not make me so. Strange that it would, cried Marianne. What have wealth or grandeur to do with happiness? Grandeur has but little, said Eleanor, but wealth has much to do with it. Eleanor, for shame, said Marianne. Money can only give happiness where there is nothing else to give. Beyond a competence, it can afford no real satisfaction, as far as mere self is concerned. Perhaps, said Eleanor, smiling, we may come to the same point. Your competence and my wealth are very much alike, I dare say. And without them, as the world goes now, we shall both agree that every kind of external comfort must be wanting. Your ideas are only more noble than mine. Come, what is your competence? About 1,800 or 2,000 a year, not more than that. Eleanor laughed. 2,000 a year? One is my wealth. I guessed how it would end. And yet, 2,000 a year is a very moderate income, said Marianne. Family cannot be well maintained on a smaller. I am sure I am not extravagant in my demands. A proper establishment of servants, a carriage, perhaps two, and hunters cannot be supported on less. Eleanor smiled again. To hear her sister describing so accurately their future expense at Coombe Magna. Hunters, replied Edward. But why must you have hunters? Everybody does not hunt. Marianne coloured as she replied. 
but most people do. I wish, said Margaret, striking out a novel thought, that somebody would give us all a large fortune apiece. Oh, that they would, cried Marianne, her eyes sparkling with animation and her cheeks glowing with the delight of such imaginary happiness. We are all unanimous in that wish, I suppose, said Eleanor, in spite of the insufficiency of wealth. Oh dear, cried Margaret, how happy I should be. I wonder what I should do with it. Marianne looked as if she had no doubt on that point. I should be puzzled to spend so large a fortune myself, said Mrs Dashwood, if my children were all to be rich without my help. You must begin your improvements on this house, observed Eleanor, and your difficulties will soon vanish. What magnificent orders would travel from this family to London, said Edward, in such an event. What a happy day for the booksellers, music sellers and print shops. You, Miss Dashwood, would give a general commission for every new print of merit to be sent to you. And as for Marianne, I know her greatness of soul. There would not be music enough in London to content her. And books! Thompson, Cooper, Scott. She would buy them all over and over again. She would buy up every copy, I believe, to prevent their falling into unworthy hands. She would have every book that tells her how to admire an old twisted tree. Should you not, Marianne? Forgive me if I am very saucy, but I was willing to show you that I had not forgotten our old disputes. I love to be reminded of the past, Edward. Whether it be melancholy or gay, I love to recall it, and you will never offend me by talking of former times. You are very right in supposing how my money would be spent, some of it at least. My loose cash would certainly be employed in improving my collection of music and books. And the bulk of your fortune would be laid out in annuities on the authors or on their heirs. No, Edward, I should have something else to do with it. Perhaps then you would bestow it as a reward on that person who wrote the ablest defence of your favourite maxim, that no one can ever be in love more than once in their lifetime. Your opinion on that point is unchanged, I presume? Undoubtedly. At my time of life opinions are tolerably fixed, and it's not likely that I should now see or hear anything to change them. Marianne is as steadfast as ever, you see, said Eleanor. She is not at all altered. She has only grown a little more grave than she was. Nay, Edward, said Marianne, you need not reproach me. You are not very gay yourself. Why should you think so, replied he with a sigh. But gaiety was never part of my character. Nor do I think it part of Marianne's, said Eleanor. I should hardly call her a lively girl. She's very earnest, very eager in all she does, sometimes talks a great deal, and always with animation but she is not often really merry. I believe you are right, he replied, and yet I have always set her down as a lively girl. I have frequently detected myself in such kind of mistakes, said Eleanor, in a total misapprehension of character in some point or other, fancying people so much more gay or grave or ingenious or stupid than they really are, and I can hardly tell why or in what the deception originated. Sometimes one is guided by what they say of themselves, and very frequently by what other people say of them, without giving oneself time to deliberate or judge. But I thought it was right, Eleanor, said Marianne, to be guided wholly by the opinion of other people. I thought our judgments were given as merely to be subservient to those of neighbours. This has always been your doctrine, I'm sure. No, Marianne, never. 
My doctrine is never aimed at the subjection of the understanding. All I've ever attempted to influence has been the behaviour. You must not confound my meaning. I'm guilty, I confess, of having often wished you to treat our acquaintance in general with greater attention. But when have I advised you to adopt their sentiments or to conform to their judgment in serious matters? You've not been able to bring your sister over to your plan of general civility, said Edward to Eleanor. Do you gain no ground? Quite the contrary, replied Eleanor, looking expressively at Marianne. My judgment, he returned, is all on your side of the question, but I'm afraid my practice is much more on your sister's. I never wish to offend, but I'm so foolishly shy that I often seem negligent, and when I am only kept back by my natural awkwardness. I have frequently thought that I must have been intended by nature to be fond of low company. I'm so little at my ease amongst strangers of gentility. Marianne has not shyness to excuse any inattention of hers, said Eleanor. She knows her own worth too well for false shame, replied Edward. Shyness is only the effect of a sense of inferiority in some way or other. If I could persuade myself that my manners were perfectly easy and graceful, I should not be shy. But you would still be reserved, said Marianne, and that is worse. Edward started. Reserved? Am I reserved, Marianne? Yes, very. I do not understand you, replied he, colouring. Reserved? How? In what manner? What am I to tell you? What can you suppose? Eleanor looked surprised at his emotion, but trying to laugh off the subject, she said to him, Do you not know my sister well enough to understand what she means? Do you not know she calls everyone reserved who does not talk as fast and admire what she admires as rapturously as herself? Edward made no answer. His gravity and thoughtfulness returned on him in their fullest extent, and he sat for some time silent and dull. Chapter 18 Eleanor saw, with great uneasiness, the low spirits of her friend. His visit afforded her but a very partial satisfaction, while his own enjoyment in it appeared so imperfect. It was evident that he was unhappy. She wished it were equally evident that he still distinguished her by the same affection, which once she had felt no doubt of inspiring. But hitherto the continuance of his preference seemed very uncertain, and the reservedness of his manner towards her contradicted one moment what a more animated look had intimated the preceding one. He joined her and Marianne in the breakfast room the next morning, before the others were down, and Marianne, who was always eager to promote their happiness as far as she could, soon left them to themselves. But before she was halfway upstairs, she heard the parlour door open, and turning round was astonished to see Edward himself come out. "'I'm going to the village to see my horses,' said he, "'as you are not yet ready for breakfast. I shall be back again presently.' Edward returned to them with fresh admiration of the surrounding country. In his walk to the village he had seen many parts of the valley to advantage, and the village itself in a much higher situation than the cottage afforded a general review of the whole, which had exceedingly pleased him. This was a subject which ensured Marianne's attention, and she was beginning to describe her own admiration of these scenes and to question him more minutely on the objects that had particularly struck him, when Edward interrupted her by saying... You must not inquire too far, Marianne. Remember, I have no knowledge in the picturesque, and I shall offend you by my ignorance and want of taste if we come to particulars. I shall call hills steep, which ought to be bold. 
surfaces strange and uncouth which ought to be irregular and rugged, and distant objects out of sight which ought to be only indistinct through the soft medium of a hazy atmosphere. You must be satisfied with such admiration I can honestly give. I call it a very fine country. The hills are steep and the woods seem full of fine timber, and the valley looks comfortable and snug, with rich meadows and several neat farmhouses scattered here and there. It exactly answers my idea of fine country, because it unites beauty with utility, and I dare say it is a picturesque one too, because you admire it. I can easily believe it to be full of rocks and promontories, grey moss and brushwood, but these are lost on me. I know nothing of the picturesque. I am afraid it is but too true, said Marianne, but why should you boast of it? I suspect, said Eleanor, that to avoid one kind of affectation, Edward here falls into another. Because he believes many people pretend to more admiration of the beauties of nature than they really feel, and is disgusted with such pretensions, he affects greater indifference and less discrimination in viewing them himself than he possesses. He is fastidious and will have an affectation of his own. It is very true, said Marianne, that admiration of landscape scenery is become a mere jargon. Everybody pretends to feel and tries to describe with the taste and elegance of him who first defined what picturesque beauty was. I detest jargon of every kind, and sometimes I have kept my feelings to myself, because I could find no language to describe them in but what was worn and hackneyed out of all sense and meaning. I am convinced, said Edward, that you really feel all the delight in a fine prospect which you profess to feel, but in return your sister must allow me to feel no more than I profess. I like a fine prospect, but not on picturesque principles. I do not like crooked, twisted, blasted trees. I admire them much more if they are tall, straight and flourishing. I do not like ruined, tattered cottages. I am not fond of nettles or thistles or heath blossoms. I have more pleasure in a snug farmhouse than a watchtower, and a troop of tidy, happy villages please me better than the finest banditti in the world. Marianne looked with amazement at Edward, with compassion at her sister. Eleanor only laughed. The subject was continued no farther, and Marianne remained thoughtfully silent till a new object suddenly engaged her attention. She was sitting by Edward, and in taking his tea from Mrs. Dashwood, his hand passed so directly before her as to make a ring with a plait of hair in the centre very conspicuous on one of his fingers. "'I never saw you wear a ring before, Edward,' she cried. "'Is that Fanny's hair? I remember her promising to give you some, but I should have thought her hair had been darker.' Marianne spoke inconsiderately, what she really felt— but when she saw how much she had pained Edward, her own vexation at her want of thought could not be surpassed by his. He coloured very deeply, and giving a momentary glance at Eleanor, replied, "'Yes, it is my sister's hair. The setting always casts a different shade on it, you know.' Eleanor had met his eye, and looked conscious likewise. That the hair was her own, she instantaneously felt as well satisfied as Marianne. The only difference in their conclusion was that what Marianne considered as a free gift from her sister, Eleanor was conscious must have been procured by some theft or contrivance unknown to herself. She was not in a humour, however, to regard it as an affront, and affecting to take no notice of what passed, by instantly talking of something else, she internally resolved henceforward to catch every opportunity of eyeing the hair, 
and of satisfying herself beyond all doubt that it was exactly the shade of her own. Edward's embarrassment lasted some time, and it ended in an absence of mind still more settled. He was particularly grave the whole morning. Marianne severely censured herself for what she had said, but her own forgiveness might have been more speedy had she known how little offence it had given her sister. Before the middle of the day, they were visited by Sir John and Mrs Jennings, who, having heard of the arrival of a gentleman at the cottage, came to take a survey of the guest. With the assistance of his mother-in-law, Sir John was not long in discovering that the name of Ferrers began with an F, and this prepared a future mine of raillery against the devoted Eleanor, which nothing but the newness of their acquaintance with Edward could have prevented from being immediately sprung. But as it was, she only learned from some very significant looks how far their penetration, founded on Margaret's instructions, extended. Sir John never came to the Dashwoods without either inviting them to dine at the park the next day or to drink tea with them that evening. On the present occasion, for the better entertainment of their visitor, towards whose amusement he felt himself bound to contribute, he wished to engage them for both. "'You must drink tea with us tonight,' said he, "'for we shall be quite alone, "'and tomorrow you must absolutely dine with us, "'for we shall be a large party.' "'Mrs Jennings enforced the necessity. "'And who knows, but you might raise a dance,' said she, "'and that will tempt you, Miss Marianne.' "'A dance?' cried Marianne. "'Impossible. Who is to dance?' "'Who? Why, yourselves, and the Careys, "'and the Whittakers, to be sure.' What, you thought nobody could dance because a certain person that shall be nameless is gone? I wish with all my soul, cried Sir John, that Willoughby were among us again. This, and Marianne's blushing, gave new suspicions to Edward. And who is Willoughby? said he in a low voice to Miss Dashwood, by whom he was sitting. She gave him a brief reply. Marianne's countenance was more communicative. Edward saw enough to comprehend not only the meaning of others, but such of Marianne's expressions as had puzzled him before, and when their visitors left them, he went immediately round her, and said in a whisper, "'I have been guessing. Shall I tell you my guess?' "'What do you mean?' "'Shall I tell you?' "'Certainly.' "'Well, then, I guess that Mr. Willoughby hunts.' Marianne was surprised and confused, yet she could not help smiling at the quiet archness of his manner, and after a moment's silence said, "'Oh, Edward, how can you? "'But the time will come, I hope. "'I'm sure you will like him.' "'I do not doubt it,' replied he, "'rather astonished at her earnestness and warmth. "'For had he not imagined it to be a joke "'for the good of her acquaintance in general, "'founded only on a something or nothing "'between Mr Willoughby and herself,' he would not have ventured to mention it. So, Edward. Edward's making some jokey jokes there. I love his whole section on, well, I'm sure if I tried to describe what it looked like, I would fail because I don't have the words to do it the correct way. But then he goes on and does it, and he uses all the terms that Marianne would require him to use. And he proves how he both understands, but also how he is not prone to go there himself. He's a little calmer, a little more mm, reserved. And what was that about? Why did he flip out like that about being reserved? He seems reserved. He seems kind of quiet and shy and all of that stuff. 
But there is that secondary definition of reserved. And so there may be something else going on in Edward Ferris that we don't know about yet. Like, how and when would he have gotten Eleanor's hair to put in the ring? These kinds of rings, these were like locket rings, sometimes where you'd have the hair or the keepsake under a glass cover, like a watch face. Sometimes these were rings that were just made of braided or plated hair. Sometimes the plated hair would actually be incorporated into part of the band. There are all sorts of different kinds, but I found one that sounds kind of similar and looks a little bit like something a man might wear. And I've, I've linked to that. It was actually a Pinterest page, but I've linked to it from the show notes so that you can go take a look. But yeah, Edward, hun, fill us in a little bit because that, that seems odd. And another kind of odd thing, or it seemed, I guess it seemed odd to me, was Eleanor and Marianne's conversation around Edward about misunderstanding people. Eleanor talking about Marianne not being a particularly lively girl. It often meant something like uh, active, which is kind of how we would use lively, but it could also be happy and funny and merry. And when you look at it that way, you can go, oh yeah, actually, you know what? Marianne is a really serious person. She can be silly sometimes, but she's not being silly because she hasn't thought things through. She's not being dopey. She's not going, oh, I don't know. She has reasons behind some of her decisions and her thoughts, and they may be kind of ridiculous logical steps that she makes, but nonetheless, she's very serious about this, as Edward points out. But then it goes on, and you have this little speech. I have frequently detected myself in such kind of mistakes, said Eleanor, in a total misapprehension of character in some point or other, fancying people so much more gay or grave or ingenious or stupid than they really are, and I can hardly tell why or in what the deception originated. Sometimes one is guided by what they say of themselves and very frequently by what other people say of them, without giving oneself time to deliberate or judge. And this seems to me to be a piece of that incompetence research that they've done. We've talked about it before on the podcast, that incompetent people always rate themselves far more competent than they actually are, whereas the truly competent people are always rating themselves lower because they actually know how much they don't know, while the incompetent people think they know everything. It's the difference between being an expert and an amateur, I think. Experts know how much there is to know, and amateurs kind of think, hey, my dad has a barn, let's put on a show. And, and Eleanor really is a very good judge of people. And so she's kind of putting herself, not putting herself down, but demonstrating how good she is at judging people because she is aware of when she misjudges people. Whereas Marianne's assessment of Eleanor that follows Eleanor's little paragraph completely misses the mark and thinks that Eleanor is absolutely ruled by what other people tell her that she sublimates everything that she believes in to fit other people's definitions. And she said, no, I've never believed that at all. I do think that there are kinds of behavior that are a good thing to think about, like not running off in a carriage privately with some guy. 
But Marianne really seems to have given Eleanor short shrift here, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And that, I think, is where we are going to leave it for today. Now, if you go on the Craftlet Tour this October 2015, don't be surprised if someone shows up with the Claude glass for you to play with. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like it would be kind of fun. Please do go look at the show notes at episode 386 so you can see some of the examples of the Claude Glass paintings and actual Claude Glass glasses in use. And of course, the DIY version for for you to go off and make your own as well. You can also follow the link in the show notes to the final episode of Twelfth Night and full cast recording. Thank you again for your reviews and ratings at iTunes and on Stitcher. It helps the show enormously. And Craftlet, for the first time in forever, now shows up on the front page of Classic Literature Podcasts in the iTunes store. And a lot of that is due to you. So thank you so much. Those Patreon patrons who have signed up at the level that has a special private hangout, Coming up, I will be messaging you on Patreon privately, so you'll know when and where. Premium audio people, we will have our online meetup when we're done with Jekyll and Hyde. That way we can talk about Canterville Ghost, Dorian Gray, and Jekyll and Hyde, which all relate so nicely to one another. And thank you again for sending in your gardening tips and hacks. Very, very much appreciated by my family and our lawn. Please feel free to send more gardening hacks, should you have any. And I mean, anything. I don't exactly have a brown thumb, but my thumb is not as green as it could be. Gardening for the first time in Southern California near the beach where the soil was excellent, where you just kind of threw seeds over your shoulder and they grew into enormous plants overnight. (laughs) Makes it a little harder when you live someplace where soil might be a little dicey, Sun might not be as full as you want it to be for as long as it needs to be. We have a huge shade tree that interferes with things like tomatoes. So, you know, and deer. We have deer problems here. Anyway, gardening hacks, absolutely appreciated. Chicken hacks. We have a garden shed. If you go and you look on my Instagram account, you'll see this garden shed way out at the back. And we have been told by our landlord that we can put chickens in there. There's a shelf that they can roost on. We can make a little ramp for them to walk up and down. And we can enclose the area in fencing or chicken wire, which is all great. But this is Thing Two's idea. And even though we had thought about doing the chicken coop back in Tucson, we never got that far enough off the ground to do any actual chicken research. I still think that was the right idea. Why why aren't we building with plastic bottles all the time? I don't know. So if you live in a suburban or semi-rural area and have chickens, please send in any information you might have at 206-350-1642 or general gardening hacks, what with it being that time of year. All right, take care. Have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app 
or at the show notes at craftlit.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlit.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 